Well, good morning, Chapel family. Haven't sung that song in years, but uh, whenever I do, it reminds me of my dad. Uh, my dad loved that song. Uh, there is power in the precious blood of the Lamb, and I am so glad. It is a wonder-working power that washes away our sin. Well, welcome. Uh, if you weren't here last week, last week we began a new study series in the book of Acts. If you um, weren't here and you didn't get one of these, I'd encourage you. This is a place to take notes. We're going to be in the book of Acts for the next 11 weeks. If you'd like one, just raise your hands. Uh, the ushers have some there and they'll be glad to get one to you. We're spending uh, from now till till Christmas, basically, looking at the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of Acts. But we're looking at the mission that Jesus gave us to be witnesses. The, the title for our series is Martyrs. And uh, the reason we chose that title is because if you look in the Greek, when Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses, in Greek that word witness is martyr. Uh, because so many witnesses gave their lives for the sake of the gospel, it became known, uh, it came to mean to, to die for one's faith. But the real meaning, the original meaning of this word is to be a witness. We're in Acts chapter 2 this morning. I encourage you to take out your Bible and uh, follow along as we study this morning. So you pull your SUV up to the edge of the Grand Canyon. And then you jump out and run over and take a look and you pick up your phone and you, you call and you begin to describe what you see to your cousin Lester who has never been outside of Topeka, Kansas. That's a little bit of the task ahead of us this morning in looking here in Acts chapter 2. The impossibility of trying in a short time to summarize a passage that is a vast expanse of wonderful truth. It's rather long in length, but it is super large in its scope and in all in its depth. We saw last week that just before in chapter one that just before Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, ten days later, on the day that we know as Pentecost, that it happens here in chapter 2. This moment in Acts chapter 2 is monumental because it is the beginning, it is the birth of the church. It is the start of a new chapter in God's program. It is as significant as the covenant that God made with Abraham and later that he, the covenant that He made with Moses as He gave the Old Testament law. This is the beginning of a new work, of literally a new covenant, one that was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. We won't go there, but you can look it up on your own. You'll recall perhaps that on the night before Jesus was crucified, as He was there in the upper room with His disciples, and they were partaking of the Passover meal, and as Jesus took the cup, He said, this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood. He was referring back as the, the, they would have known well the Scriptures to Jeremiah 31. And Jesus is saying it's starting in my blood. And here on Acts chapter 2 is really where the, it is inaugurated. The new covenant begins. In the reading that Gary gave earlier from this chapter, he stopped in the middle actually of a sermon that the Apostle Peter was giving. The passage as the chapter continues, he keeps going. But as he stopped, he finished Peter quoting a passage from the prophet Joel. Joel was saying, Peter was commenting on the uh, on what was going on, what these folks were observing around them in Pentecost. And, and Paul says, look, this is what Joel spoke of. And and Peter says that Joel was prophesying these events that they were witnessing and that these events are the beginning, the initiating of a period that he called the last days. Actually, that Joel called the last days. Because Joel said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit. And Joel says, this is the beginning he goes on to say at the end of his quote from, from Joel, where Joel says that with wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, with blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon shall be turned to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. What he's saying is, this is the beginning of those last days. It ends with these signs with the dramatic entrance, the return of Jesus Christ, that Christ means the Messiah coming as King in glory and in power. In other words, to take what Peter has said as he quotes Joel and explains it, you and I are living in last days. Days that began here at Pentecost and conclude with the return of Jesus Christ. Last week, we saw in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, just before Jesus ascends, He gives to the disciples, to the church, our mission, our marching orders for these last days. He was responding to the question that the disciples had asked, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said, guys, that's not your business. The Father has control over that. It's not for you to know when the kingdom is coming, but here's what you're to be doing now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So now as Jesus promised on this day of Pentecost, the church receives the power for the mission the power to carry out those marching orders. As this day of Pentecost arrived, as we heard Gary read, what catches our attention immediately is that there are great signs, great wonders that are happening. There is a the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Not just a little... Something, think more like tornado, hurricane. Something that got the attention of all the folks. There were tongues of 
like fire that came and rested upon the 120 believers that had gathered in that upper room and were praying. It says that they began to speak with other tongues. And as people from all over the city began trying to search out where the sound of the wind was coming, and they, they all began to gather and those in the upper room spilled out into the streets. The people that, that come out are marvel because what they what they hear is these people praising God, it says, in their own language, in their own native tongue. And they are people from all over the world speaking many different languages. It's hard to miss these marvelous signs. They grab our attention just as they certainly grabbed the attention of all the folks there in Jerusalem that day. But as we look at this chapter, I want us to carefully look and make sure that we avoid two mistakes that these signs here in this chapter sometimes bring. See, first of all, there comes the temptation for many to chase the Pentecostal experience. Some look here as the church is being formed and they and they see these miraculous signs, the tongues, etc., and they think that, well, that should be the norm. That should be what happens today with, with all believers and at, at all times. It is the norm for the church. I don't have time to really develop this thought, but let me just say this morning, I don't believe that's the case. I, don't, I believe that the miracles, the signs here are formative, but not normative. They are something that was essential and important to the formation of the church, both here on this day of Pentecost and on a couple of occasions to follow, but they are not the norm for the church today. And I'll just give one example of why I think that's the case from the text, rather than going to many other passages I could in Scripture. But if you would, just look toward the end of the chapter. If you know the story, the Apostle Peter continues the sermon after after Gary left off. Peter keeps preaching. And when he's done, the people there are, are smitten and they go, what do we do? And he says, you need to repent and you need to believe and be baptized. And they were. The people believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were baptized by water. And then it says they were added to the church. The Holy Spirit adds them into the church. And what's interesting is on this day of Pentecost with all the signs and all the wonders that were happening among those 120, there is no mention, if you'll look, verse 41, it says those who received this word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people became believers. And now we look to see all these people doing all the signs and wonders, and it's not there. If you go down, just skip a verse, go down to 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by everybody in the church. No, it doesn't say that. Were being done through the apostles. The implication is that they're happening in the apostles, but not with all of these other folks who are just added to the church. It's not that God couldn't, but it appears that He didn't. It appears, you see, that it is not the norm for every believer to experience all of these things and for every believer in all time. I think these were formative 
but not normative. We'll end it in that part there. But I don't think that that is what God intends is for you and me to go around chasing the Pentecostal experience. I want to recreate that and have this experience. That was a Pentecost experience that day and not our experience today. But there's a second thing, and it's really the opposite error. And that is to say that since if, if that Pentecost experience is not the norm today, since the miracles aren't what we should expect here today, then this passage is nice history. It's a nice explanation and information about what happened as the church was formed, but there's no real application for you and me today. And I think that is very wrong. Equally wrong. You see, we noted last week that the book of Acts is all about the continuing works of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Where, where Luke, as he's writing, says that in my first letter, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about everything that Jesus began to do. And the, the implication is that the book of Acts is about everything Jesus is continuing to do. And that's exactly what the book of Acts is. It's the story of Jesus who now has ascended to heaven, but He is continuing to work. It's just He's working in a different way. Instead of Him working in a physical body on earth, He is working through a spiritual body that is made up of every believer in Jesus Christ through the church. And so here in Acts 2, as the church is born as Jesus begins to do this new work in a new way, what is most significant about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the miracles. They are significant and they're purposeful. But what is most significant is that there are two new realities that the Scriptures do affirm are the new norm for believers today. Two new realities as the church is formed. The first is this, is that the Holy Spirit baptizes every believer into the church. That word baptism means to immerse or to place into. So that every person who believes in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit places them into the church, the body of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. All of us as believers. See, it's important to realize that the church is not a club or an organization. Now you see, you can actually join the chapel of the lake. You can come say, hey, I want to be a member, and we have you fill out a few papers. We, we as the elders, we, we approve and say, yeah, you can be a member, and, and you join the church. Well, you join the chapel of the lake. But you see, the church of Jesus Christ, while I hope that everybody in the chapel of the lake is a member of the church of Jesus Christ, that's a different thing. Because everybody in the church of Jesus Christ is not in the chapel of the lake, and everybody in the chapel of the lake may not be in the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is not a club, and it's not an organization. You can't join the church of Jesus Christ. Did you realize that? You can't join it. The Holy Spirit has to put you in it. It's not an organization. It is an organism. It is a living being that is comprised of 
countless numbers of individuals whom the Holy Spirit has knit together, who has put together into one organism. The living, physical body of Christ in this world. That's an amazing reality, but that is something that began here at Pentecost that wasn't there before. Another reality that is here is that every believer now, every single believer has the Holy Spirit living inside of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? See, all this is important. We have been baptized into one body and we have the Holy Spirit living within us and that is significant. But the purpose of the Holy Spirit in us and binding us together is not so we can have great experiences. It's not so we can have a great show with great power. It's not so we can do all these wonderful things. There is one purpose for the Holy Spirit being in us, it is to give us power for, go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we showed a minute ago, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness. You guys aren't responding very well this morning. Let's try this again. Okay, there's one purpose, Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be you're doing much better. Thank you. That's good. I, I feel like I wasn't teaching you anything. Ah, let me just share a quote because I think it sums it up so well. A guy, a pastor over in Colorado, Stephen Cole, said it this way. And Rather than steal his quote, I'll quote it. The fullness of the Spirit in God's people is to empower them for witness to all the nations. Thus, the meaning of Pentecost is God's equipping His church with the power of His Spirit so that He will be glorified among the nations. The point of Pentecost is missions. That's the point of this. It's not about miracles. It's about mission. Now, with that in mind, what I want to do in the remaining time we have this morning is I want us to look at four actions of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which indeed are miraculous, but they are not the miracles that we normally think of. It's not the, the tongues of, of fire. It's not the, the, the rushing wind. It's not the, those type of miracles. They are equally miraculous, but four things the Holy Spirit did at Pentecost that He still does today in relation to the mission. In relation to you and I being witnesses, the Holy Spirit has been given so that we'll have power to witness. What does that look like? There is very practical application from what we see here in the text. First of all, what I see here is that the Holy Spirit, on this day of Pentecost, He prepares hearers. God set the stage for Pentecost some 1,500 years before the day that we have here in Acts 2. In Leviticus chapter 3, God speaking through Moses gives to the people of Israel seven feasts that they were to celebrate throughout the year. It goes through the calendar and, and lists them there in Leviticus 23. Four feasts in the spring, three feasts in the fall. 
It's a great study. I don't have time to tell any more about that except this, that three of those seven feasts were designed to be pilgrimage feasts. They were they were given to be pilgrimage feasts. You can read about that over in the book of Exodus in chapter 23. And there it lists these three pilgrimage feasts. And what God says is on these three feast days, the people are to gather where the presence of God is in the temple in Jerusalem or before that where, where the tabernacle was, the people were supposed to come. And especially, it said, the men. All of the men are supposed to appear on these three feast days. And so wherever they live, they're supposed to take a pilgrimage and travel three days. The first of those feasts was, and uh, in, in we read in Exodus 23, the first is Passover. The second of those three feasts is is Pentecost, and the third is a fall feast, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, the significance of that is that what it means is that on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, you have Jews coming from all over the world to Jerusalem. And you have to realize that in this day and time, the time of Jesus, that there were more Jews living outside of Israel, outside of the land of Palestine, than lived in the land of Palestine. Three to four times as many. And they're scattered all through the world. And so when they gather, there are people from all over the world. The, the ancient historian Josephus, who writes about 30 years after this, estimates that the population of Jerusalem is about 150,000. That's 150,000 population, kind of like the population of a college town. There's the population when students are gone, and there's the population when the students are there, and it's a vastly different number, right? That's how it is here. How many, how much bigger does it get? Well, Josephus estimates that it's somewhere between a million and a million and a half people in Jerusalem. We can't even fathom that. The closest I could think of to show you a picture of what it might look like is the Muslim Hajj, which is their pilgrimage to Mecca. It just happened a couple of weeks ago. And some one and a half to two million Muslims descended on Mecca. All of that white you see is people all the way out and down the roads. It's people as far as you can see in the pictures. Hordes, throngs of people. That's what it was like in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Every home in Jerusalem was filled. Every room was filled. Every suburb around Jerusalem was filled with people. Every place you could pitch a tent, people pitched tents and were camping out. A million to a million and a half people around Jerusalem on this day when the mighty wind blows, or the sound of it, and they come running out. God assembled a crowd. But He didn't just assemble a crowd. And by the way, the people are, are, are surprised. That's why it's such a big deal when they come. And as they come and find the sound, and then they find these 120 people, and they're hearing them speak in their own languages, and they say, wait a minute. Aren't these all Galileans? Which is the ancient equivalent of Ozark Hillbilly. And it's like making your little annual trip down to Branson and you there hear some Ozark Hillbilly speaking perfect Swahili. 
or an Ozark hillbilly speaking perfect French, or German, or Japanese. You know, they're amazed. So God gets a crowd and He gets their attention. But more than that, He prepares their hearts. See, God didn't just get the folks there. Many of these folks not only were there for Pentecost, but remember there was another feast that they were required to go to, which was 53 days before the Feast of Passover. And so many of them were there days before Passover. They may have heard Jesus teach. They may have seen Jesus do the miracle of chasing out the money changers and cleansing the temple. They may have seen Jesus do miracles. They certainly heard. They may have witnessed the triumphal entry on that Sunday before. Some of them may have been in the crowd when when Jesus was tried or when He was crucified. They They were probably, many of them were there, if not most of them, when On the day Jesus crucified, and you'll recall that as He dies, it grew dark as midnight. Not dark as a dark storm. Dark as midnight. And the earth shook with a violent earthquake. So much so that Roman soldier says, surely this was the Son of God. And they they heard the furor about in the temple where the the curtain, the veil between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place was ripped down the middle from top to bottom. They heard all these things. Many of them as well probably were still in Jerusalem on Resurrection Sunday and may have heard the reports that Jesus had risen from the dead. Perhaps even some of them had witnessed it. And so when the Apostle Peter stands up and begins to preach, and he preaches, Their hearts are ready. And Peter says, you yourselves, he says, verse 22, you know these things. You guys saw it. You guys heard it. I'm telling the truth, aren't I? Yes. See, what's significant about that, brothers and sisters, is the Holy Spirit gets a crowd and He prepares the hearts He did it on Pentecost. And you know, He still does that today. He still prepares people to hear the Gospel. And He puts them in our path. The real tragedy is that many of us are just so busy with other things that we aren't even looking and we don't even notice. Secondly, the Holy Spirit not only prepared the hearers, the Holy Spirit prepares and empowers the speaker. He gives boldness and courage to the apostles. If you just read Peter's sermon, you read, he, he stands up there with the other eleven and you wonder as he starts to speak, you wonder, who is this guy? This is the apostle Peter who half the time he's put, digging his foot out of his mouth because he says the wrong thing. This is the apostle Peter who cowered and who wimped out and who cursed before a little girl rather than identify with Jesus on the night of the trials. And yet here he stands before who knows how many thousands or tens of thousands at the beginning of his sermon and at the end of it he points the finger at the crowd and says, you put him to death. 
This Jesus who is both Lord and Christ, Messiah, you killed Him. He's not afraid anymore. Where does He get that boldness? Acts chapter 4, it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak of the Word of God with boldness. The Holy Spirit still gives boldness today to any who will open their mouths. The Holy Spirit not only gave courage, but He gives words to Peter. This sermon, and I wish we had time to tear it apart and just dig into it a bit, but it is a masterful message. It is powerful, articulate. It is filled with Old Testament quotations. It has well-reasoned arguments. And He even starts it off with a joke. (laughs) Because some of the people are saying, look, these people are just babbling. They're drunk. Because they're not understanding what languages some of these folks are saying because, you know, they're a, they're a Palestinian Jew and they only speak Greek and some Hebrew and Aramaic and I don't know what that guy's saying. Hey, he's just drunk. And Peter says, look, what, what do you folks think? They're drunk? <laughs> it's only nine in the morning. Did you guys look at your watch? And that's humor because what he's saying is any good drunk is still passed out. And if you're not a drunk, you don't start drinking yet. Oh, now that I got your attention, guys, you killed the Messiah. He starts, this remarkable sermon wasn't prepared ahead of time. Peter didn't get up that morning and think, I think I'm going to go preach a sermon to tens of thousands of people. They were there in the upper room praying. The Holy Spirit came and God assembled. The Holy Spirit assembles this vast crowd. Peter's like, somebody has to say something. (laughs) The Holy Spirit moves him to speak. And it's powerful. He gets to this end of his sermon, and unlike most of mine, (laughs) you know, I get to the end of mine, and you guys got to the end of it about ten minutes before I did. But they're tracking with Peter. They make it all the way to the end, and when he says, this is what you did, they go, what do we do? Just believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized. See, He gives them power and He gives them boldness and He gives them words. It's not, a, it's not saying that you and I just need, we can just sit back and just wait and God's going to give us words. It's not that we don't prepare. That's foolishness. We know the Scripture says, study, be prepared. He says, be diligent to present yourselves to God as a workman who doesn't need to shame, who rightly handles or accurately handles the Word of truth. Peter had preparation. He spent three years in Jesus' seminary. Peter probably grew up as a good Jewish boy having years of learning the Old Testament Scriptures in Sabbath school. He probably had a lot of stuff up here, but he may very well be like you and me. Or maybe you. I don't know if it's you, but I know I have problems where I just wonder. It's up here, at least it was, but it kind of fell out somewhere. It seems every time I try to pack stuff in, it just kind of falls out and you wonder, what's the point of trying to study? Because when I study it, I forget it. Well, keep going because you see the reality is that God gives us what we need. He gives us words. He made a promise to His followers back in Matthew 10. He said, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them and all the Gentiles when they deliver you over. Don't be anxious how what you're 
How you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speaks, but it's the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. He gave another promise. I know He gave it to the disciples, but I think it applies to us as well. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I have said to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit will help us to learn and will help us to recall what we need to remember when we need it. You may not be able to know it now, but when you need it, He'll help you remember it. I remember years ago, I was getting on an airplane heading to Houston. I looked forward to catching a little Z's on the, few Z's on the plane. That's what I like to do is sleep. And, uh, but instead, as soon as I got on the plane, the guy sitting next to me started a conversation. Then he asked, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And that often shuts him up. Uh, <laughs> but I said, no, what do you do? And he said, well, I guess I work for the other side said, I'm a scientist, I'm a microbiologist. And I knew at that point, I knew I was supposed to talk with this guy, but I was so intimidated at that point. He had two PhDs. He was very intelligent. He was very much a committed atheist. But we started a conversation. For the next two hours, all the way from here to Houston, we talked about Jesus and faith and science and evolution and creation. And I was so intimidated. You remember, I have a degree in music, okay? <laughs> I'm not equipped for this. And I had an argument at first. You know, God, surely I, I really want to sleep. And I'm really not equipped to talk to this guy. And when the plane landed in Houston and we started gathering our stuff, he said, you know, he said, I, I got a lot of thinking to do. You've raised some points and some questions and some things I've never thought of. I need to think about this Jesus. We parted company and as I was walking down the gangway out of the plane, I remember thinking, I can't believe I thought to say that. I can't believe I remembered what I read over here. I can't believe. And it occurred to me, you didn't. <laughs> You're not that smart. And you see, that's how it is, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit prepares people and puts them in our path, and then He prepares us, and He'll give us the boldness, and He'll give us the words. We have to be willing to open our mouth. I guarantee you, if you start opening your mouth and talking to people about Jesus, you will have experiences like that. Not every time, but you will have experiences like that. You see, He gives the Spirit to give power for witnessing. Not the Spirit so we just have power, because we love power. The power shows up when we need it to be witnesses for Jesus. Two more things very quickly, and they're much shorter than the others. Thirdly, the Spirit grows the church. Last verse of the chapter, verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. It's Jesus who grows His church. It's our job simply to be witnesses. Because being saved, the reason this is so significant is because being saved isn't a matter of changing somebody's mind. You can't save somebody because it's not just a matter of getting them to say, oh yeah, I changed my mind. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, let me go to Ephesians chapter... Uh, you know this verse. You've heard it before. Ephesians 2, it says, But because of His, God's great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, for it is by grace you have been saved. Being saved isn't a matter of changing somebody's mind. It's a matter of taking somebody who is dead and making them alive. You can't do that, and I can't do that. Only God can do that. It is God who saves people. It is our job simply to be witnesses. That's cool because being a witness isn't about being a great speaker or about being really smart or about having a Bible degree. It's not about our skill. It's just about being faithful to live for Jesus and to talk about Him. And He does the rest. He does the work. He grows the church. Lastly, the fourth big miraculous act of the Holy Spirit, and these are all miraculous, is that the Holy Spirit unites the church. Last four verses, verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, there are many unusual factors here, just to clarify something. Remember that most of these folks have come from out of town, so many from out of country. They just came for a few days of a feast and their whole world just got turned upside down when they realized they killed the Messiah they've been looking for for 2,000 years. And now they have received Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord and they are spending all their time learning all they can as they go back to the Scriptures and reread and relook at all of the Old Testament through a different lens. They're seeing everything different and people are staying for days and weeks and months longer than they ever intended. And so this is in a time when there are no ATMs, no credit cards, no hotels, no Walmarts. And you can just imagine there's an awful lot of needs with an awful lot of folks. So the point is, in the midst of all this need, these believers are all together and they are exhibiting toward one another unbelievable care and sacrificial care of one another and for one another. And it is so striking that it gets the attention and impacts the unbelievers who are looking. It says just in the beginning of that last verse, it says they have favor with all the people. It means all the unbelievers are looking at these folks and going, wow, what is going on with those folks? And it's not about all these miraculous signs. It's about there are people doing unimaginable loving acts towards one another, sacrificially caring for each other. And it impacts people so much that daily more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That shouldn't surprise us because Jesus says, you remember this, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples and that you have love for one another. See, the greatest, truly the greatest testimony and witness for Jesus Christ are believers who truly love one another. I believe it is the most powerful witness for Christ and perhaps one of the most lacking. The Holy Spirit unites very unlikely and disparate, very different people into one body here in this early church. 
And it shows. He takes a bunch of porcupines and helps them to live together harmoniously and closely without hurting each other. He changes us so that what we become is a living example, a living demonstration of the very grace and love that we have received from Jesus Christ. These four miraculous and powerful things that God did through the Holy Spirit in this early church, He still does and desires to do in us today. He prepares hearers and puts them in our path. He prepares us and will empower us if we'll open our mouth. And He will do the work of bringing people to Him if we'll be faithful witnesses. And He desires us to be united and to love one another as a powerful testimony of His grace. Father, we needed to hear this today. Because the reality is, for so many of us, we are not faithful nor effective witnesses for Christ. We need to see that it is not only what you desire, it's possible because you make it possible through your Spirit. Lord, may you make these things real in us. May we love one another so much that it shows that people are drawn to Jesus because they see the grace and love we have towards one another. Lord, may You put people in our paths and prepare them to hear the Gospel. And then, Lord, make us aware, make us break us out of our little shell where we see it and cause us to open our mouths. Then, Lord, give us words. And would You, by Your grace, use us as Your instruments to point people and bring people to Jesus Christ. All of this so that Jesus is honored and glorified. It's in His name we pray.